Welcome to Sermons of Grace with Pastor David Murphy of the Grace Baptist Church in Gambles Terrace, Antigua. Today in our study of the book of Romans, Pastor Murphy continues with Paul's greeting to the Roman church in verses 7 and 8. We are in the book of Romans and we've just started this book. I'd like to commence reading from verse number 1 and then we'll come to our text which we'll find in verse number 7 and then verse number 8. Those are the two verses we'll be covering tonight. But just let's read the uh, verse number 1 because it's not a lo- large passage uh, so that you can get a, a kind of the context of what the Apostle Paul writes in this passage. Follow with me, please, as I read from Romans chapter 1, reading from verse number 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by the prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship, for obedience to the faith among nations, all nations, for his name, among whom are ye also the called of Jesus Christ, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I have mentioned of you always in my prayers, making requests, if by any means now at length I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end that ye may be established. Now last Sunday night, we look at the fourth matter that Paul dealt with and we've studied, and that has to do with the identity of his audience. As he had mentioned his three credentials, he also pointed out three particular characteristics of those to whom he wrote. Paul describes them in these terms. He said that you are called. We discussed what that meant, called. No man enters the Christian faith unless he is called. Okay, the Bible makes that very, very clear. There is a calling. And Paul uh, tells the believers again and again. And then we went and we traced that in the New Testament and showed you again and again this concept of calling. We are called. And then Paul said that we are beloved. And the point I, I made and I hope you understood is that particular term, beloved, is the same term that he used in connection with his own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no uh, unusual word that is used in connection. It's the same word. And then I went to the high priestly prayer of our Lord in, in, in John chapter 17 and showed you that Jesus said the Father loved us as he loved the Son. There's no more stupendous statement in all the Bible than that. The same quality of love he had for his Son, he has for the believer. And that's why the Apostle Paul says that we are beloved. And the last thing that Paul said is that we are separated, we are saints. And we talked about how the Roman Catholic Church have robbed us of that particular term. 
And we pointed out to you in the scripture that that term saint means that we are separated unto God. We belong to God. We've been taken out of the marketplace of sin. And God has brought us to put us into his kingdom. And now we no longer belong to the enemy. We belong to the Lord. And we belong to him. We to serve him. And we pointed out in all the vessels in the, in the tabernacle, what distinguished those vessels in the tabernacle, it was just an ordinary spoon, an ordinary cup, an ordinary basin. But what distinguished them is that they were taken out of ordinary use to be used for the service of Jehovah. See? And that's what uh, Paul is saying, that we are separated unto the Lord for his service. Now tonight I want to move uh, further into this epistle. I want to look at those two verses that uh, we have in verse number 7 and verse number 8. He said to all that be at Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. He said, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he said, first, I, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is spoken out throughout the whole world. Uh, this is one of the most unfortunate divisions of verses in the Bible. Really, in truth and fact, when they were put in these verse divisions, it would have been very proper in verse number 7. To put in, uh, in verse number 7, to all that be in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saint, full stop. And then start that other part, grace to you and peace from God your Father, the Lord Jesus Christ. See? Remember that the divisions of your Bible are not inspired. I hope you understand that. Okay. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, most of you would know that these divisions began in the Old Testament. First of all, with a guy called Cardinal Hugo in the 13th century. He divided them into into chapters, and then in, in 1555, a man by the name of Robert Stevenson put them into verses. See? So uh, these verses only came about in 1555. But here's an unfortunate division that was quite clearly unnecessary. But we're not going to get into the dispute about that tonight because I think all of us understand that the only the original autographs are inspired and no translation is inspired. I hope we know that. I hope we agree on that. I hope there's no dispute about that, no debate about that in the process. But that brings us then to look at the passage, having said that. And I just want to spend my time tonight on, on just two points, really. First of all, I want to look at the greetings that Paul gave. He greets them. And he expresses a wish and a desire for the believers. And he, he actually uh, announces or pronounces God's blessing on the believers. He uses two words. He said, look, what I want for you is grace, and what I want for you is peace, grace and peace. We'll talk about that for just a moment. And then not only the greetings, but Paul begins to express his gratitude. He says to them, first of all, I thank God. And we'll talk about what Paul thanked the Lord for in regard to these believers. But let's look at the greeting for just a moment, and uh, let's see what we can pull from that, and how we can apply it to ourselves and what is the relevance of that particular greeting in relation to the New Testament church in the 21st century uh, believers? First, I would like to point out to you that the greetings that Paul uses here is one of the usual formulas that you'll find in Pauline epistles. You'll find the Apostle Paul always in his epistles, uh, when he's writing to the churches, always seem to link both this matter of grace and peace. There's a linkage between them. And he wishes these believers these two particular forms of graces. By the way, the reason why the Apostle Paul does that, because these two words, these two particular words, grace and peace, encompasses the whole spectrum of divine blessings. If you've got grace and you've got peace, what else do you want? And the Apostle Paul is that giving you from the, the Alpha and the Omega. 
the nadir and the zenith. He's going from one extreme to the other. And he seems to believe that by wishing these particular blessings uh, upon the believers, that he's, he's actually uh, pretty much wished them all that God can offer them uh, as Christians. Uh, it's an interesting point, by the way, that, uh, and scholars are, are point this out, that when you come to the non-general epistles, and you come to the pastoral epistles, he changes his formula. And he, he, he now slots in another word between grace and peace. You know what word he puts in? Mercy. When he writes to Timothy and he writes to Titus, to Paul in the, uh, the, the pastoral epistle, he doesn't say grace and peace to you. He says grace, mercy, and peace. Why do you think he says that? It is one people need mercy as pastors. They need mercy. And what is mercy? Grace is God giving you something you don't deserve. Mercy is God withholding from you something that you do deserve. And thank God he does extend mercy to pastors. If he gave us all that we deserve, I'm not too sure how long we would last in the process. But that is a small point. But I think it's an important point. That in the general epistles, he speaks to the church about grace and peace. But when he writes into the pastoral epistles, he talks about grace, mercy, and peace. He adds that element because in a very special way, pastors need mercy in dealing with his flock. Now, we are not going to debate about what's the main reason for that and, and so on and so forth. That's not our point. What I need to do is to get to these two particular words that Paul talks about. So we're not going to speculate any further as to why the distinction between the general epistles and the pastoral epistles. Let's talk about this word for just a moment, grace. If you were a Jew and you met me, you would say shalom, which means peace. The Christian greeting was not shalom, it was gratis, which means grace. The Apostle Paul seems to combine both the Jewish greeting and the, the Christian greeting. And uh, here Paul is talking especially about this whole matter of grace. Now all of us know what grace is. If I were to ask you here tonight what grace is, everybody can spout off what grace is, unmerited favor. Another way of putting that is that it is God's kindness. It is God's goodwill towards you. And of course it is God's unmerited favor. It is God in his kindness doing something for you that you don't deserve. As used here, the Apostle Paul is really, as I pointed out to you, encompassing all the blessings. Paul puts it another way in Ephesians. When he's speaking to the Ephesians, he said that he wanted them to be filled with all the fullness of God. That's another way, basically, the Apostle Paul is trying to, to the two poles. Between grace and between peace is the fullness of God. See? Just another way that Paul put it. But he wants them to have this divine blessing of plentitude. See? He wants God's favor on the church. And so he wishes them this concept of grace. But you also find that he not only wishes them grace, he wishes them peace. And you will find that these two words are frequently conjoined in the apostles' writings. And the reason for that is because one flows from the other. The great ocean of grace, out of that great ocean of grace, flows the river of peace. See? And uh, Paul is here saying to the believer, I want you to know not only God's grace, but I want you to know God's peace. Now, I want to remind you that there are different levels of peace. And the Bible talks about. For example, I think most of you know that there's such a thing called the peace with God. As a matter of fact, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse number 14, Paul says that Jesus Christ is our peace. And if you read the context there in Ephesians chapter 2, he's talking about the fact of our salvation. 
That's the same passage that Paul talks about the matter that we were dead in trespasses and sins. So when we talk about the peace of God, it's talking that somehow we are connected with God in terms of our conversion, that we have come to put our faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The moment a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, there's one thing that you get immediately, instantaneously. And that is, you know one thing, the war is over. You've taken the amnesty God has given to you, and now you've accepted Christ as Savior. And so now, what has happened? You now come to a point of peace. Most of you would remember that when you first got saved, you, 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 you went forward with great anxiety, trepidation, fear. Uh, and to a great extent, somebody sat down with you and explained the gospel to you, and the Holy Spirit convicted you, you repented of your sins, you embraced Jesus Christ, and then guess what? When you left that place, I want to guarantee you there was a peace that you never had before. See? The war was over. That is called the peace with God. When you have peace with God is when you've put your faith and trust in Christ. And you cannot have peace with God until the cross comes into your life. There is no peace without Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him as Savior, you may have everything else in this world. But one thing you are absolutely sure will never have. And that is peace. When he enters your life, he brings with it peace. It's called peace with God. But there's another word that is used in scripture, Philippians chapter 4, is called the peace of God. You recall in that particular passage, Paul said, be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication, etc. with thanksgiving. And then he said, the peace of God will rule your heart. Here is another dimension to peace. He's not talking about saving peace now. He is talking about sustaining peace in the believer's life. That after we've come to faith in Jesus Christ, there are things that will disturb the believer. Create anxiety in our minds. Fear and worry. Is at that point in time, you don't need saving peace. You already got that. But what you need is the peace of God to rule your heart. How do you get that? How do you get it? Paul said by prayer and supplication. As you come before God, you put your need before God, and you have a thanksgiving spirit. Then God begins to give you a peace that you cannot, it's totally inexplicable. See? By the way, some of these things that we talk about, uh, you know, uh, to theologically explain them and, and, and define them and so on and so forth, you have to tell a person, taste them, experience it. But you can never experience the, kind, uh, the peace of, uh, of God without this whole matter of prayer and supplication. But this is the kind of peace that... We have when we are faced with trials and anxiety. So it's not, it's not peace with God which we have at conversion. It is peace of God that comes in those moments of trial or anxiety when we come before God and pour our hearts before Him. We seek His help. And then His peace stands guard of our life as a citadel, etc., etc. That's what the word means there in Ephesians chapter 4. But let me uh, talk about something else here. Not only the peace with God and the peace of God. But I want to say to you, there's also such a thing as inner peace in your own personal life. Augustine said it this way, and I quote. He said, our hearts are restless until we find peace in thee. And uh, when we know, when we have peace, the peace of God and peace with God, you will find also that we have this inner peace in our lives. Colossians chapter 3 verse 15 puts it this way. He said, let peace the peace of God rule in your heart. Let it be the, the referee in your heart. Let it regulate what comes into your heart. Let, let, let you judge everything by the referee of peace. See? And this is what we call here the, the, and then of course, 
The other kind of peace is peace with others, where we end hostilities with others because we've entered what is called a brotherhood. And we develop a disposition where we know as believers we want unity, we want togetherness, we, we, we're not for contention and divisiveness, we're not for uh, creating controversy and division in the body of Christ. What we really want is to have peace, not only inside, but we also want to have peace with others. In our Lord's words, he puts it this way. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called what? The sons of God. See? And if you are at peace with God and you have inner peace, you should be at peace with your fellow man and your brothers and sisters in Christ. And you should always try to resolve matters so that that peace will continue to reign in your life. Uh, 2 Corinthians 13 puts it this way. He said, live in peace. Live in peace. Do away with all this contention and all this rivalry in the Corinthian church that uh, between the four factions. Paul said, live in peace. He goes on in Romans chapter 14 and verse 9. He said, follow, follow things that make for peace. Don't, don't look at things that will cause division in the church, division in the body of Christ. Look for things that will bring peace. Pursue those things. And then again in Corinthians chapter 7 verse 15, he reminds us that God has called us to peace. That's how God wants us to be at peace. Not at war. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 13, he said, be at peace among yourselves. This is peace now among brethren, peace with other people. And then in 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, he said, follow peace. That means to pursue peace. Make it your goal and your ambition. That that will be your pursuit as a Christian. You want this kind of peace. Now Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He says to the believers, I am writing to you and, and, and I'm about to greet you and I, I want some blessings in your life. And uh, I want to use two words that will encompass all the blessings of God, the fullness of God in your life. I want you to have grace and I want you to have peace. But what is also fascinating is this. The Apostle Paul can never teach anything practical unless he brings in doctrine. People who tell you that they don't like doctrine don't belong to the church. Yeah, they ought to go and join a social club or something. See, You can't separate the practice of the believer's life apart from doctrine. They're interconnected. One flows from the other. And look, look, look at this passage. He said, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, did you notice that? Grace and peace from who? God the Father and who? The Lord Jesus Christ. Now will you notice that the Apostle Paul has to bring in doctrine here. And the most profound doctrine as well. Because what the Apostle Paul is doing here. He's putting Jesus Christ on this, in the same category. On the same level. He's putting it on the level of equality. What we have here indirectly being taught. It brings us back to the whole doctrine of the Godhood. The Trinity. He is saying that Jesus is not just an ordinary man. You don't put an ordinary man to the same level as God. God the Father and then put David Murphy. You don't do that. They're not in the same category. Not on the same level. And by the way, grace belongs to God and peace belongs to God. So it is flowing from the Father and the Son. It means that they're equal. The deity of Christ is actually here being taught. 
in a very subtle way, but it comes out in all of Paul's writings. But notice uh, a few things here in connection with this matter. First of all, uh, I want to say this, and I know that you know this already, but you know what he says here in, in verse, uh, verse number 7. He says, uh, grace to you and peace from God. Who? Our Father. May I remind you that God is only the Father of the believer. Has that ever gotten to, to you yet? Our Father. And Paul is identifying with the church. Our Father. This one in heaven, who is the creator, who is the redeemer, he has become our Father. I would like to say to you that he's the father of nobody else. He's the father of the believer, the Christian. Well, pastor, what about the Muslims? What about the Muslims? What about the Hindus? What about the Hindus? You tell me. What about the Taoists? What does that mean? What about the, uh, the Buddhists? Uh, what does that mean? There's no such thing as a universal fatherhood of God. We who are in the faith of Jesus Christ, God has adopted us into his family. And God says here, Paul says here, our father. Now I remind you that this was a, a bone of contention. And our Lord had to deal with that in John chapter 8 when he's talking to the Jews. And he told them one of the most staggering words you could ever use to describe the Jews. Imagine here you are religious people. You've got all the rich heritage of in the lineage of uh, Abraham, you've got all the fathers, all the prophets. You've got all the covenants. You've got everything going through the law. And then he turns around and says to you, you have your father the devil. Boy, you took stones and threw at him. See? You have your father the devil. And the lust of your father you will do. And the Jews are enraged. Enraged. See? But what he is making here is a clear distinction. See? God the father is only the father of the believer. You can be a Jew and he's not your father. You can be a Muslim and he's not your father. You're a Hindu and you're not your father. Are you in Christ or not? See, that's not a popular message, is it? But we must assert it again and again that God the Father is only the father of the believer, the one who is in Christ. Small point, I know, but something that needs to be asserted again and again, especially... In these days where there is so much vagueness in connection with scripture, etc., etc. And so he, he says to them that, uh, he says, God the Father and, and, and Jesus Christ. Now, what does that all mean when he uses that particular term? When Paul re is writing to these believers and said that God is the Father, I want to suggest to you that Paul is, is saying to them all the paternal ramifications of that word applies to you. What does that mean? It means, for example, if he's my father, it means he will provide for me. If he's my father, what is that? It means he will discipline me. If he's my father, he will, will guide me. If he's my father, it means that he will chasten me. If he's my father, it means that he will protect me and offer me safety. If he's my father, it means that he must love me. All the paternal ramifications of that word is wrapped up in that word father. See? What I'm saying to you is, you're not an orphan. God will take care of you. See? And he's writing to these Roman believers. Remember, these are first generation believers coming out of paganism. And he wants them to know that in a very special way, they're connected to the God of the universe. He is your father. And all the paternal responsibility of the father will be fulfilled 
on their behalf. And uh, Paul is trying to drive that home to these. But then notice the second thing that he mentions here is not only the idea that God is our Father, but notice he says, and and, and, uh, go back to verse number 7, grace and peace from God our Father, and what? The Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to say to you tonight, and I need to, to point this out to you, and I need to assert it again and again, I want to say that one of the important things that we need to remind ourselves as believers is what we call the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Paul gives him his full titles. He didn't say, and Jesus or Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does that for a distinct purpose. You cannot truncate the Lord. You cannot have a piece of him. You either have all of him or you have none of him. I'm saying that to say this. When I was in schools many ages ago, (laughs) I'm a dinosaur now. Uh, I remember in the 70s and the 80s, there was a raging controversy in the religious world. And I will never forget that some of the real godly men were branded as as, as, uh, legalists and errorists and distortionists. And the reason why they were given these labels is because they insisted that you could not have Jesus as Lord, as Savior, and not have him as Lord too. There was a teaching going around telling people that you can have him as Savior, and then ten years down the line you decide to make him as Lord. That doesn't exist. It only exists in your mind. Doesn't exist. When you receive Christ and you trust Christ... You trust him as the Lord Jesus Christ. Not Jesus Christ, not Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. It has to be emphasized. This two-step salvation that people talk about doesn't exist. Only in your mind it exists. Only in your mind. A person that is genuinely saved understands when they come to put their faith and trust that they are trusting him as Lord and you're trusting him as Savior. Not, I'm trusting him to save you today, but I'm not ready to trust him as Lord today. That doesn't exist. There's no animal like that in the Christian church. See? And that needs to be emphasized again and again. But many times in the 70s and the 80s, men that made those statements were branded as errors. Distortionists of truth. And I must say to you, I went along with it for a while. But you know, I look back on this whole thing, they were right then and they're still right now. See, When you come to faith in Christ, I want to say to you that you're actually surrendering to the Lord in this matter. How, well, let me ask you a question. How is it possible for a person to, to say they want to get saved and not want to surrender to Him? You tell me. It means you haven't laid down your arms yet. It means you're still an enemy of God. It means that you're not prepared to sign this amnesty. Amnesty that he's offering to you and embrace it. I might have come from another generation, but I will tell you this. The day I got saved, and I can remember when I got saved, like when I got married. I can tell you when I got saved. See? I can tell you what scripture was that was preached. I can tell you exactly what I did. It was a reality to me. The Lord shook me up. Clearly. But I know one thing that when I met him in my bedroom after the service and I, I began to pray to him, there's one thing I was very, very sure. I was saying, Lord, 
I give you my entire life. I surrender all to you. You're my Lord. Use me, do with me, whatever you want to. That is how I understood salvation. And it's the only salvation I know about. The Apostle Paul is emphasizing here, not only is Jesus God our Father, but Jesus Christ is our Lord. See, And then notice that little conjunction that uh, Paul uses here in this particular passage. He says in verse 7, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What a profound little word that is. Conjoining the Father with the Son, putting them on the same level in the same category, and saying to them, they're all, this grace and this peace of God, they're all flowing from one source. And I, as I pointed out to you, the Apostle Paul is clearly inferring in that particular passage this concept of Christ being on equality with the Father and establishing his deity in that particular passage. Uh, I, I, I reminded you that this grace is the grace of God. This peace is the peace of God. If it's the grace of God and the peace of God that is flowing from the Father and the Son, there must be equality there. That's the point I'm making here. It's called the logic of Scripture in that regard. Okay. Now, what would you put on the same level of God or who would you put? Can you put another man? Can you put a power? No, you put persons on the same level. You put people in the same category. And that's what the Apostle Paul does here. And, of course, Philippians chapter 2 explained that, does it not? That he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to. But made himself a what? No reputation. See, He was in the form of God, the Bible says. But he didn't hold on to that. He became a man. Uh, and there, uh, Philippians chapter 2 is telling you very clearly that this one is deity. Of the same nature, the same uh, character as the father. Don't confuse identity. The son is not the father, the father is not the son. They're just e- equal in nature. That's the point that uh, the Apostle Paul is making here indirectly in this passage. All right, that's the greetings. Now, let's see if we can uh, deal with the second thing that Paul talks about. That is his gratitude or his thanks. And that's what we have here in verse uh, number 8. He said, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken out throughout the whole world. Now, I want you to notice what the Apostle Paul literally says, and he uses some very distinct words. He says, I thank God for you. He doesn't say, I thank you for being in the church. I thank you for being a member of the Church of Rome. No, the Apostle Paul knows he offers thanks for God because they're only in the church because of God. You remember what he said to them? You were beloved, you were called, you have been separated. So when the Apostle Paul is writing, he's offering thanksgiving and praise and gratitude. He doesn't thank, Robert, I thank you for being a member of this church. Robert, I thank you for coming to the... No, thanksgiving goes to God because Robert is not in the kingdom apart from God. So praise God to go for God to God see, who worked in his heart and brought him into the church. Our religion is too man-centered. Too absolutely man-centered. And we rob God of his glory and God of the gratitude and praise that is rightly due to him because we are so focused on man that we forget where the real thanksgiving ought to go and the real gratitude ought to go. It goes to Jehovah God for the work that he's done in every believer's heart in the church. He does the work. He brings us into his kingdom, etc., etc. So he's not thanking them for being faithful. He's not thanking them because uh, they joined the church. 
He's simply here expressing his thanks to God uh, for the fact that they're in the church by his grace. Do you remember what Paul says? By the grace of God, what? I am what I am. All that I am, Paul says, I give it to the attribute of God's divine grace in my life. So Paul is here saying that in another way in the process. But notice certain features of this particular thanksgiving that Paul gives and this kind of gratitude that Paul gives. He, he says in, in that same verse, he says, that First of all, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all that your faith is sp- spoken throughout the world. Now when Paul says that he's thanking God for their faith, uh, I'm not, I'm not, I don't believe that they had an unusual amount of faith. I, I don't think this is what Paul is talking about here. The Apostle Paul is not saying that, you know, they have a, a, a kind of level of faith that's beyond all the other believers. That's not what Paul is saying here. Now we do know there's a, a particular gift called the gift of faith. And we know that people who have that particular gift have an unusual amount of faith. Men like Hudson Taylor. Men like George Mueller, etc. These are men who had that particular gift of faith. But that's not what Paul is teaching here. What the Apostle Paul is saying to us here in this particular chapter is that because of the radical conversion experience that this church in Rome have encountered, people have taken note of what has happened and the changed life in this church. So that throughout the Roman world, wherever the church is, Wherever the church is in, in, uh, in, in, the, in the Roman world, people have gotten to hear about this church in Rome. How God has done a, a, a transformational work in their lives. And they've been so radically transformed that uh, people take note of that. See? And I remind you when we were dealing with the introduction to this great book of Romans. Here is the metropolis of the known world. In chapter number one, the Apostle Paul mentions 19 indictments against the Roman uh, citizenry. 19 of the worst kinds of sins. But then here comes the gospel and God transplant a church in the midst of the most corrupt city in the whole world. And people marvel. How is it possible? It's like a lily, as I pointed out, you in the gutter. It's still white and it's not tarnished because it's in the gutter. But it's planted there and it's blooming there. People take notice of that. And here in the church of Rome, when the gospel came, there was such a transformation in the lives of these people. That word got, got out. You gotta get to Rome. You gotta, you gotta meet these believers. You gotta hear. There's something uniquely special about them. They're such a transform. They are so distinct from the Roman city and the culture. They've got tremendous faith in God. They stood out. See? And Paul said, I want to thank God for that. An influential church in the very metropolis of sin. Uh, Rome, as it were. But yet, here is a church planted as a lighthouse in a place of darkness. And they're spreading that light throughout the culture. And uh, it is known throughout the world. And by the way, may I point out to you that their global testimony is in a time when they had no newspapers. A time when there was no telegram and no telephones. A time when there was no internet, as it were. A time when there was no radio and television. A time when there were no press agencies and no advertising agents to do that. But when the Spirit of God is working in the church, it will be noticed. 
when a church has encountered a living experience with God and there's revival in that church, take it from me, it will be noticed. News will spread. See? And that was what was happening in that church. See? The, the, the word of God came with tremendous power that was so radically transforming these believers' lives that people had to take notice. Couldn't help notice. And word went from one to the other, one to the other. See? A testimony uh, that this great church had. Uh, and Paul commends them for that. And I believe that he did it most of all because it was the capital city of the time. It was like the London or the Paris or Amsterdam, the New York of his time. And you know, in Paul's mind, he was a great strategist. When you read the Pauline epistles and see the missionary journeys, you see that the first thing that Paul did every place he went, he went straight to the city, established a church, and out of that city church, out of the environments, the message got out. See, strategic. This is where the resources are. This is where the personnel are. We'll start there and then we'll start sending out to the other places. A lot of the merch missionaries down south, if you go down to uh, St. Vincent and even uh, go to St. Lucia, you'll find that they, where they started, they started in the country. So there, there, there are no big churches in the city, in, in those islands, basically. And it's a default because there was no strategy. Paul was a strategist. And Paul knew that once we get in Rome, it's just a matter of time, it becomes a strategic center of missions. And we'll begin to reach out into the suburbs and the other areas. And so Paul said, I thank God for you and your testimony that has gone around the world, as it were. Now thank God the Roman church is not the only church that Paul speaks with such language. Look with me at First Thessalonians and then we'll come to close. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. He said in verse number 7, he said, For that you were examples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. Verse 8. For from you sounded out the word of God, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith to God's word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. Paul said, I don't even have to, I don't even have to preach. Places because when I get there, all they're talking about is the Thessalonians. See? From them, they sounded out the word. See? They made Paul's job superfluous, See? unnecessary. And Paul commends them uh, for that, for the broad witness that they had. And thank God, it's not just the Church of Rome, but here it is, it's also the Church of, of, of Thessalonians. Because those churches, when they got the gospel and came out of paganism, they fell deeply in love with God and just wanted everybody to know. By the way, he that is saved from much, loves much. You know that? See? You tell me your background, sir. You tell me your background, sister. I will say this to you and it might seem rather strange. But you'll find a person that have tremendous zeal for God is not the guy that has always had a silver spoon in his mouth. And never had any challenges in his life. Uh, the person comes from a deep, deep, deep pit. And when they realize where God has brought them from, out of a sense of gratitude, they have a fire in their being. It's like the woman uh, who loved him and, and, and just showered him with her, with her tears and, and wiped him with her hair. And people say, it's a waste! Waste, Alan. Why are you wasted? You could have taken that money and given to the poor. She said, you don't understand, see. She gave of her best because she knew where she came from, see. And that was what these New Testament churches knew about, where they came out of paganism. 
worshipping idols and the pantheon of gods. But then they've come to finally see the truth. They're captured by the truth. And once you're captured by the truth, you want everybody to know it. And that's how these churches were. Our churches are different today. We got a sick Christianity. It needs medical attention, divine attention. See? It's lost its power. It's lost its zeal. And uh, it needs a new influx, as it were. A new breath. A new wind. A new wave, as it were. And that will only come when the Holy Spirit visits us with revival. And then it sets the fire aflame. But let us learn from these New Testament believers. And let us uh, make sure that we are testimony and a witness. And all around this area where God has planted this church. People in all of this community should know one thing. They should know some of Grace Baptist Church. You should be part of that, that they know Grace Baptist Church, what we believe, what we teach. The life of our people should attract people to this ministry. All in this community, the people should know. That's our job. That's our responsibility. This church did it. And they did it without all the different means that we have today. They did an excellent job. We do such a poor job with all the resources we have. May God forgive us in the process. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word tonight. Trust that in some measure we've been able to bring to the believer's attention very, very simple truths, but yet truths that we sometimes forget. And these truths have lost their luster for us and uh, the appeal for us. Uh, many, many times, it's only when we go back and look at these things, we, we see the profound truths that are there and how we could have just gone over them, slipped over them, ignored them to our own detriment. Lord, as we go through this epistle and we begin to examine ourselves using this as a, a, a backboard, as it were, a reflection, a mirror, help us to see how often we fall short. Here we are with over 2,000 years of Christian history, with all the boundless resources that we have, all the means that we have, yet these churches that had very little has put us to shame. We kindle our love and our heart for thee and help us to know our calling and our mission. May we be a testimony and a witness, not just here within the confines of these four walls, but around this, this particular church and beyond this church. I pray, Lord, that we will see our mission and our responsibility. Thank you for the grace that you have given to us and the peace that flows from that. We are deeply grateful. And thank you, Lord, for establishing a church here in this location. Now, Lord, remind us of our duty and our responsibilities. And may we try to imitate this New Testament church. May we become a witness and a testimony that people will hear about because of the transforming work that you've done in our lives. Bless us as we leave. Go with us throughout this week. Help us to ponder the truths that we've learned. And those who have any doubts about God being their Father and Jesus Christ being Lord, I pray that we'll wrestle before you in your word and to get these things straightened out because they're vitally important to how we live as your people. Thank you for the time we spent here tonight. Trust, Lord, that your spirit would edify us and has edified us. And we'll take these things in our minds and cement them there like barbed arrows that stick in our hearts. And throughout this week, as we reflect and we meditate, we recall some of these things and may it lift our spirits and challenge us to be better Christians 
and a greater church and a better ministry. We pray these mercies in Christ's name. Amen. Join us again next time here on Sermons of Grace as Pastor Murphy focuses on verses 8 to 13 and Paul's desire to visit the church in Rome. If you'd like to contact Pastor David Murphy or Grace Baptist Church, please call 268-462-4230 or visit during one of their service times. Sunday school is at 9 a.m., Sunday morning at 10 a.m., Sunday evening at 7 p.m., or Thursday evenings at 7 p.m. Grace Baptist Church is located on Rowan Henry Street in Gambles Terrace, Antigua.